I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on March 6, 2021. Episode 8, Immigration, The Damage of Emotional Decision-Making. Every day I wake up, I know I am blessed to have been born in this country. And many, many people in other countries each day wake up and seek ways to enter the United States. They're not doing so because the country is evil or failed or systemically racist or imperialistic. Most of them come to our shores and enter our borders seeking a better life. Some of them do so legally. Others do not. And in that difference, there is significance. No country can survive with unregulated open borders, and no country can expect immigration to be a benefit to society and the community if those who enter illegally are given equal status to those who follow our country's laws, knowing that the process is worth it to become a legal citizen of the greatest nation ever to have existed on earth. There is a crisis at the border and in our immigration system. Where about a thousand illegals cross the border every day just a couple years ago, that number is now estimated to be three to 4,000 a day. Many of those crossing are criminals. Others are truly just seeking a better life but have failed to follow the proper procedures to enter legally, and more and more are unaccompanied minors. Those children often have been sent by their parents with strangers or paid coyotes, the term for individuals who seek payment to help people sneak across the U.S. border. But also common is the human trafficking of those children by those who seek only to do them harm and gain financially. What to do when these children are apprehended has become a political hot potato. Claims of kids in cages, inhumane treatment, and violation of civil rights can be heard without any regard for what the limited options are and the relevant questions to ask. Who are these children's parents? Where are they? How humane would it be to release them, undocumented and unsupported, into the country? And how could they ever succeed under those circumstances? It is anticipated by the Department of Homeland Security that 117,000 unaccompanied minors will cross the border in 2021. This is not merely a challenge, as it was described by the current administration's Secretary of Homeland Security. It is a crisis. It is a crisis for the security of U.S. citizens, and it is a crisis for these children. So what is the solution to our immigration crisis? 
No country can expect to survive with no border control. No matter how you may feel about those suffering in other countries and those who are sneaking across our borders not to commit crime, which is a large percentage of those involved, but to seek a better life, it is not the government of one country's job to take care of the citizens of another, unless and until doing so also as a way of taking care of its own country and her citizens. From our founders and throughout our history, until quite recently, this basic concept was understood. What is the United States' history when it comes to immigration and immigration laws? Let's start where any discussion of United States policy should start, the United States Constitution. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 4 grants to Congress the power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. Though our founders valued limited government, it was understood that as a new nation, it was necessary that the admission of any new citizens was one both of national security and one that could not vary state to state if the new nation was going to move forward as a unified country. For that reason, how individuals could join this new country as citizens was one of the limited issues authority over which was granted to the federal government rather than to the individual states. The founders did not view immigration as something to allow indiscriminately and without standards, however. And the founders' views on immigration though containing none of the complexity in a legal sense as our current immigration laws, but instead focused on the growth of a new nation, may be even more poignant in today's current political climate due to the misunderstood purpose of any country's immigration laws and the need to control who enters one's country. In 1790, James Madison provided a clear statement on why any nation, for him especially a new nation, would want immigrants and what kind of immigrants best served the existing citizens of the nation and best held a chance for the nation's future success. He stated, It is no doubt very desirable that we should hold out as many inducements as possible for the worthy part of mankind to come and settle amongst us and throw their fortunes into a common lot with ours. But why is this desirable? Madison continued, Not merely to swell the catalog of people. No, sir. It is to increase the wealth and strength of the community, and those who acquire rights of citizenship without adding to the strength or wealth of the community are not the people we are in want of. To the person who would cry that clearly Madison was a bigot who wanted only wealthy elites, this red herring misses the entire point of why any nation allows those born elsewhere to enter. It's to better that nation. If that is not the goal and immigration policies do not work toward that end, such policies only hasten a country's decline and ultimate failure. Other founders held similar views to Madison. Alexander Hamilton explained in 1802 that, quote, The safety of a republic depends essentially on the energy of a common national sentiment, on a uniformity of principles and habits, on the exemption of the citizens from foreign bias and prejudice, and on that love of country which will almost invariably be found to be closely connected with birth, education, and family, end quote. And our first president, George Washington, saw the issue similarly, writing in a letter to John Adams that immigrants should, quote, get assimilated to our customs, measures, laws, in a word, soon become one people, end quote. The overarching theme of our early leaders, which still holds true today, is that emigration laws, as with all national policies, should seek to achieve the preservation of a national spirit and a national character. Lest those in favor of open borders and mass immigration start crying foul at this point, isn't this the very unity so many people claim they seek, yet they refuse to understand that unity requires a unifying principle, 
when it comes to immigration, that unifying principle is a belief in and support of our unique and treasured American ideals. It is here that our founders again exemplify the genius with which they undertook construction of our country. Strength is found in similarities, not differences. Diversity for diversity's sake is a dangerous idea that threatens the very existence of any country because it strips away unifying principles and any desire on the part of the populace to defend that nation against outside threats. The requirement that immigrants assimilate is not a racial attempt to make all people alike. You can celebrate other cultures, beliefs, and traditions as long as your central understanding of the United States is a shared one. At this point, where the loudest and most prevalent voices all too often scream about the errors and evils of America, it is not hard to see that we are already on a path doomed to destroy us, and immigration is just one part of the path we are traveling. But it wasn't always this way. Unfortunately, questions about who to allow to enter our nation have always been plagued with difficult choices, bad policy decisions, and more and more a lack of focus on what is best for existing Americans, and more on providing refuge to those of other countries. So let's explore our history of immigration laws to better understand the issues facing us today. Looking at the country's historical experience with immigration helps shed light on where we are today. In the first years of the nation's existence, it was necessary to define who could gain citizenship. The Naturalization Act of 1790 allowed any free white person of, quote, good character to apply for citizenship as long as that individual had been living in the country for at least two years. Without gaining citizenship, these individuals located in the new country were not granted rights, such as the right to vote, to testify in court, or to own property. Though the racial limitation is certainly a scar on the country's history, it was a product of its time, but the recognition that there was no benefit in allowing citizenship to those who were not of good character is still a proper standard. How could anyone argue that admitting bad characters into a nation's citizenry is in that nation's best interest? Immigration was happening at this point, but not in large numbers. Then, following the War of 1812, what was a small number of annual European immigrants into the new United States became a surge that lasted until the Civil War. But this mass immigration was not a success for the new country. Sick from long journeys, the new hopeful citizens came bearing disease— and overwhelming the resources of the towns along the shores at which they arrived. So in 1819, Congress passed the Steerage Act, in hopes of bettering conditions aboard the ships that would be carrying these would-be new immigrants. The Steerage Act also represented the first required record-keeping as to who was on board, such that records began to exist as to the ethnicity and general character of those planning to enter the country. The Civil War, however, caused a total upheaval of all U.S. laws, and it did not spare immigration law. States tried to enact their own laws, but they were struck down by the Supreme Court, and certain groups were targeted as not proper for migration to the United States. These groups included the Chinese, polygamists, those with certain illnesses, and those convicted of certain crimes. When Ellis Island opened in 1892, immigration again started an uptick, and it peaked in 1907, with 1.3 million people entering the United States through Ellis Island in that single year. That same year, an increase in Japanese immigration to the West Coast led to agreements between Japan and the United States to limit how many could come from that country to this one. Further restrictions on immigration were put in place in 1917, following World War I. And in 1924, an annual quota, a maximum number, is placed on immigration. 
By this same time, concerns about illegal immigration through the land borders of the United States resulted in the creation of the U.S. Border Patrol. World War II then posed different problems for the United States and immigration. Coming out of that war as one of only two global superpowers, the United States was now a place of refuge for many fleeing the war-torn conditions of their homelands. This led to additional legislative enactments to deal with refugees and to lift prior restrictions on those seeking to immigrate from Asian countries. By the 1950s and 60s, the United States was becoming home to a number of different refugee groups, including those fleeing Soviet-controlled areas in Eastern Europe, those fleeing Castro's Cuba, and those fleeing Asian countries in turmoil as a result of the conflicts in Korea and Vietnam. But the true numbers of immigrants was still small. In fact, the period from 1921 to 1965 is called by many the Restriction Era of Immigration, where immigration restrictions and quotas slowed down any legal migration to the United States to a mere trickle. In 1965, one of the most comprehensive immigration laws was passed, the Immigration and Nationality Act. This again opened the doors for a more steady flow of immigration. As the country moved into the late 20th century, illegal immigration had become an everyday concern, and the numbers were growing. One issue raised some of the most difficult policy decisions. What to do when children are brought illegally across our borders by their parents? I hate to say it, but no good policy decisions have been made on this issue, and really no good policy options have been developed. What has happened is a set of decisions to grant amnesty by everyone from President Reagan to President Barack Obama. Unfortunately, rather than stand as isolated attempts at humanity, these moves have only emboldened those seeking illegal entry into the country. And now, so many of these children are brought here, not always by their parents, but by some unaffiliated adult who may or may not have these children's best interests at heart. By now it is clear that much has changed since the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s. Though the United States continues to be the country of choice for so many immigrants, refusals to enforce existing immigration laws, failures to reform those laws to address changing problems, and policies that encourage lawlessness in border crossings rather than legal entry all serve only to increase the border crisis that now exists. This is not the first experience the country has had with immigration, but it may be the most dangerous. Members of Congress, especially from Texas, have already started to voice concerns about the Biden administration's backpedaling on prior administration's hardline immigration policies and warn that a crisis is here and looming ever larger. Democratic Representative Gonzalez described his party's proposed bill as catastrophic, calling it a recipe for disaster. He made these comments prior to its formal introduction in the House last month, and he went on to explain his concerns. My concern in recent weeks in my district is migrants who made it across the border, who even passed the line of MPPs, who were 5,000 folks have been waiting for two years across the border. They made it across the Rio Grande Valley where they were processed and released. He went on to explain that this kind of weak stance on illegal entry into the country is likely to encourage even more to make this journey in hopes of entering the country and being allowed to stay, even though their entry was illegal. Similarly, Representative Kular, also from Texas, has been critical of any fast changes to former President Trump's policies on the Texas-Mexico border, stating that such changes will only encourage an increase in the number of illegal crossings. And we're already seeing that increase. Despite these concerns, some devastating steps in connection with immigration were taken nearly immediately by the new administration. 
signing the revision of Civil Immigration Enforcement Policies and Priorities Executive Order on its first day in office, President Biden made it clear that this new administration would not enforce immigration laws and would instead provide sanctuary for those who enter the country illegally. In no other arena is it so accepted that a proper policy is to ignore U.S. law and to reward those who break those laws. And President Biden's reversal of the Trump-era policy actually stops the removal of violent felons as a priority in the immigration sphere. Almost a reward for sanctuary cities, the new order sends the message to those seeking to come to this country that the legal process for entering is a mere suggestion and is not actually required. Not only is the recent trend toward almost no control over immigration situation by the executive branch counter to the Constitution, in the sense that the executive branch's entire responsibility in this sphere should be executing the laws as they stand, it represents a continuing reluctance by our federal government to be bound by the very laws it passes. Proposals from the Biden administration appear to be headed in the wrong direction, a direction that will further destroy any American cohesion that exists, seeking not to unify but to further divide us. Yet despite the clear danger posed by an open or nearly open border policy, those who oppose it are shut down by labels as racist or xenophobic. But how do other countries handle this issue? There are no truly open borders. No country could exist with them. But there are agreements among various bordering nations to allow free flow of their country's citizens between and among those countries, but there are not countries that have no control in place to determine who goes into, and in some cases, who goes out of the country. What may be the better way to approach analyzing United States immigration policy, or at least one way to analyze it, is to compare it to that of other countries and to look at two specific things. First, The United States is one of the only, and certainly the largest, country that is made up of so many different ethnicities, religions, and races, and constantly faces an incredibly large number of hopeful immigrants. Despite continually false claims of being a systemically racist nation, our country is an amazing testament, at least until very recently, of how many different kinds of people can assimilate to support a single government based on a set of shared ideals. Second, in making any list of the countries with the strictest immigration laws, it's hard to leave off countries like Japan, Denmark, and Switzerland, with European countries like Poland and Hungary also being notoriously hard countries to which to immigrate. What is interesting about countries like these is that they are often touted as being much more advanced in their policies and social understanding than the United States, at least by those within our borders who have made it sport to seek to undermine any greatness of America but it is much easier to address some issues of policy when your populations are much more homogeneous than the United States. In Switzerland, for example, once you've lived long enough in the country to apply for a permanent resident visa, and that is obtained, though you qualify to apply then for citizenship, to gain that citizenship requires proof that you pose no threat to the nation's security and that you have fully assimilated into Swiss life. It is not unusual for some evidence of assimilation to be part of many countries' immigration laws and policies. The reason for the inclusion of such requirements is just as Madison, Hamilton, Washington, and others at the time of our founding explained. To serve a nation's interests requires that those permitted to immigrate here support our principles and structure. What does not support American principles, structure, or security is to allow large populations into the country simply because they arrive at the border. And what is even more of a threat to our security and society is to release those who have not entered legally 
into the interior of the nation with little insurance they can be found again if they choose not to comply with any legal process required to determine if they will, in fact, be permitted to stay. But wait, wasn't the uniqueness of America, at least by the 20th century, that she was a welcoming beacon for all those seeking to escape hunger, poverty, war, and general hardship? Isn't that what the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island represent? It is a fact that the Statue of Liberty is engraved with these words. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Aside from the fact that an inscription on a monument is not representative of any official policy, it also comes from a sonnet and was selected for inscription on the base for the statue through a contest. It is an honorable sentiment and one that does embody the role of the United States as a kind of global protector, but if taken literally and as a basis on which to enact policy, it would require that essentially the United States absorb every individual from any place on earth who seeks to come here. Our resources, landmass, and American way of life simply cannot and do not support that understanding. What the poem in its entirety represents is America's place as the country that citizens from elsewhere look to as a beacon of freedom and greatness. And no doubt that represents the worldview, or at least did, of many, many places and people. The United States has more immigrants by far than any other country. It represents approximately 20% of the world's total immigrant population and has nearly 50 million immigrants, likely not including all of the many more illegal immigrants currently living within our borders. And these immigrants are incredibly diverse in terms of their countries of origin, religion, and race. Far from a country imposing racist or elitist immigration requirements, which we must admit were a part of our immigration law history, The United States is now one of offering hope to many, many people around the world who proudly and through hard work enter our borders legally and achieve what is required to be granted United States citizenship. That was the case, however, but now those who enter legally and follow the process are being overtaken by those who see some entitlement to enter our borders without following those rules, and they are being urged on by the very government officials who are supposed to protect our nation's security, principles, and ideals. There are laws that set out what must be done to enter the country, what must be done to stay in the country, what must be done to work or attend school here, and what must be done to become a citizen. Unfortunately, in recent years, our government has chosen not to enforce those laws. Perhaps the biggest failures, though by no means the first or the only in immigration policy, occurred during the Obama administration. Promising to enact sweeping change to the nation's immigration laws, changes I do not believe were in the nation's best interest and I'm thankful were not enacted, President Obama nevertheless managed to take some actions, some outside of his constitutional purview, to make a bad situation worse. In fact, a PBS news story from July 4, 2016, did not mince words when it declared that, quote, President Barack Obama's inability to overhaul the nation's immigration system will stand as the most glaring failure in his effort to enact a vision of social change, end quote. Now don't get me wrong, I did not support his vision, but his failure served only to further destroy the broken system he was unable to change. The article went on to realize that, quote, Obama will leave behind an outdated and overwhelmed system with some 11 million people living in the U.S. illegally, end quote. But this news story, as so many, misses the real failures of President Obama and many others, and that is to view immigration as some social experiment to hoist upon the American people. While in office, President Obama took the additional action of deciding what immigration laws he would enforce and which ones he chose not to enforce. 
as explained by Vanderbilt University Law Professor Carol Swain during a hearing before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration Policy and Enforcement, the failure to enforce immigration laws means that the American citizens are unprotected from a massive influx of people of foreign-born persons who have entered the country without authorization and have openly stolen jobs, goods, and opportunities from law-abiding American citizens. And before Professor Swain is criticized for some sort of bigotry, it cannot be overlooked that these, quote, American citizens, to which she refers, include, include all of those who legally immigrated here from nearly every other country in the world. Professor Swain further identified another issue created by the policies of the Obama administration. Not only is the current presidential administration not adequately enforcing immigration laws, she said, it has used the power of the federal government to fight states and localities that have made good-faith efforts to assist the federal government in performing its constitutional duty, duties to protect the citizenry against domestic and foreign threats. Imagine a country where local law enforcement stops someone and learns that person is in violation of federal law, does the right thing, and turns the individual over to the federal government, only for the federal government to set that person free back in the community. That country is currently the United States. Reports from those inside the Obama administration suggested that deportations of even those identified and apprehended, whether released or held, were being secretly delayed for years. This report, first uncovered in the mainstream media by the New York Times, indicated that these delays were known to employees at the Department of Homeland Security, as well as to immigration judges and lawyers who were interviewed for the Times article. Though under the laws, certain immigrants should have been deported, they had their deportations intentionally delayed and reportedly 50 to 75,000, about 25% of the illegal immigrant waves in 2013 and 14 were allowed to stay in the country even though the president had stated these kinds of entrants through the borders would be deported. And for many of them, they were simply released on their own recognizance with instructions to, quote, show up for court. Many of them, of course, never appeared and likely remain in the country today. Are you surprised? I'm not. Though publicly DHS claimed 81% were eventually located, the real numbers, pursuant to a now-known internal report, were closer to only 50. And it is not just a single error that led to this situation— the administration was found to have accidentally granted citizenship to almost 2,000 individuals who actually did not qualify, including at least two who were identified as terrorists by other federal government agencies. In addition to posing general security threats, illegal immigrants often take jobs away from citizens, increasing the number of unemployed, which in turn increases state liability under various unemployment programs. And we haven't yet even touched on the crimes committed by a large percentage of these illegal immigrants. Does it come as any shock that there is a criminal element within a group of people who start their days in the United States by breaking laws to enter it? Illegal immigrants are criminals. That does not mean that some of them are not breaking our immigration laws out of desperation or an understandable desire to give themselves or their families a better life in America. But they start from their very first step on U.S. soil as criminals. And there is a frightening criminal element present among this more general group. Though statistics are not always the best way to analyze an issue, when it comes to illegal immigration, it can sometimes be the best facts you have, since so much of the real harm of illegal immigration cannot be measured because those in the country illegally are an unknown group of individuals who could be anywhere doing anything. Though non-citizens make up less than 10% of the total population, at least as far as we can tell since there's no way to truly know how many people are here if they entered illegally and without documentation, but it appears that they account for nearly two-thirds of all criminal arrests in 2018, those non-citizens. 
This is up from just 37% 20 years earlier. And this is not just crimes related to their immigration offenses. This group of non-citizens makes up about a quarter of all arrests for federal drug offenses, federal property arrests, and federal fraud arrests. And when it comes to our neighbors to the South, Mexican non-citizens account for a shocking number of arrests for federal crimes, topping more than U.S. citizens in 2018. The same trend holds true for state crimes, though with a focus on those states with higher illegal populations, including those along our southern border. Texas, for example, reported almost 300,000 non-citizens found themselves in local Texas jails between June 1, 2011 and July 31, 2019, and more than two-thirds of these turned out to be illegal immigrants, not merely non-citizens. These illegal immigrants found themselves convicted of everything from homicide to burglary to kidnapping, with thousands upon thousands of drug crimes thrown in for good measure. And the crime problem is only getting worse. From 2003 to 2009, there was a 40% increase in criminal aliens and a 25% increase in what portion of those criminal aliens were not merely non-citizens, but here illegally. This is a growing problem without any real attempt at solution by our government in decades, with the exception of some hardline Trump administration policies. Not only do these crimes cause harm to citizens and legal aliens, but they impose financial costs and burdens that are borne not by these individuals, but by actual American citizens and those aliens who are here legally. Though there is a growing segment on the left that appears unconcerned about the crime associated with illegal immigration and a failure to enforce existing law, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, the left is in no way the party of law and order. There really shouldn't be any reasonable dispute that keeping out and removing those who seek to enter illegally and continue to violate our laws is good policy. What is admittedly harder is the issue surrounding children. Let's talk about the dreamers. And let's be honest, there are no good solutions for a child who was brought to this country illegally under the age of 16. It's not that child's fault, but it is somebody's fault. And especially where more and more the person bringing that child is not even a family member and may not be looking out for that child at all, the issue becomes even more difficult. The problem is what plagues many tough policy choices, and that is the emotion cannot drive the decision. And it is imperative to look beyond the immediate situation to see the potential long-term effects likely to result from a particular policy choice. It is here where amnesty for the dreamers, children under the age of 16 brought into the country illegally, is not the simple question of humanity that many wish it was. Amnesty now, just as it has in the past, is merely encouragement of more of the behavior that got us into the situation that required action in the first place. Amnesty, again, will just put us right back here, but worse, years from now. Just as amnesty in the 1980s and 1990s did. And who cheers amnesty? Coyotes. Smugglers of children who extort their parents for money, promising to take their children to America. They risk the lives and health of those who pay them and who, are they, and who they are paid to take across the border. And they enrich drug and human trafficking cartels. In addition to the harm posed to future children who may be smuggled into the country to await the next grant of amnesty, amnesty programs have only served to cost American citizens incredibly large sums of money for which the system was not prepared to pay. In addition to the crime inflicted on U.S. citizens by many of these illegal aliens, this financial burden is not minimal. Now, at this point in our financial picture, that may be, that may be less of an argument against any policy, since fiscal restraint and responsibility are entirely missing in Washington these days. But it is still a concern for me, and for the viability of the country, and for the future of our children and grandchildren. 
And providing amnesty, for example, now to the nearly 11 million estimated illegals living in the country, could wind up costing Americans another $6.3 trillion in costs related to social welfare programs, Medicare, Social Security, public education, and other benefits. And perhaps the bigger concern is that actions like reinstating DACA and granting such amnesty through Congress will only serve to undo the progress that was finally being made to control immigration in the past several years. Where the wall was built, for example, crossings the border appear to have decreased up to 90%, and quickly deporting those who cross illegally prevented their disappearance into society caused by intentional delays in deportation hearings. So amnesty for the Dreamers is one issue, and it sounds good, but is bad policy, but it is not the only issue. And the proposals touted by the Biden administration are on the wrong side of every one of them. But before we leave the issue of children, the fact that they were held in cages, quote unquote, which is just a political description for a detention center hastily constructed, under a Democrat president, I might add, is a way for the media and those on the left to ignore the real problem that for many of these children, their parents are refusing to claim them. Their parents knowingly sent them across the border illegally, hoping for yet another amnesty decision, and do not want them returned to their native countries. And it's interesting that those same cages are now still being used by the Biden administration, which when asked about it, led Press Secretary Jen Psaki to dance around a non-answer, something about the facility having to be used to have proper COVID social distancing, and totally failing to answer why use of this same facility was acceptable under President Obama when Joe Biden was vice president, but was a human's, human rights violation under President Trump, and is now okay again under President Biden. The real answer here is there are no easy answers as to how to hold these unaccompanied children when deciding what to do with them when they cross the border illegally. Stopping construction of the border wall is another initiative of the Biden administration. This is an issue about which I will never understand the controversy. We close our doors and lock our houses to keep uninvited guests in. We do the same for our cars. Stadiums are fenced off to allow only ticket holders. Airports have controlled entry and access points to ensure only passengers board a plane. Why is a wall that better ensures those seeking to enter the country do so through the door with proper paperwork not one of the most obvious solutions? And in the most recent policy announcement, President Biden made it clear that he seeks to introduce the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, which will in fact provide a path to citizenship for all 11 million currently undocumented illegal immigrants within the United States. This has been described as sweeping reform. It's sweeping, all right. It seeks to sweep any control of our borders or the flow of immigration completely under the rug. It's not limited to the dreamers. It applies to anyone. Rather than just providing the kind of am amnesty for dreamers, this bill will provide amnesty for all current illegal immigrants. We don't have the actual text of the bill yet, but reports suggest it also includes reversals of nearly all of the prior administration's immigration policies in a way that appears only to consider the well-being of these immigrants and not that of actual American citizens. In essence, the law is expected to mirror a lot of what President Biden has attempted to do via executive order, and it is likely to do nothing but encourage more future illegal border crossings. It is clear from the spike in illegal crossings of our southern border that President Biden is viewed by those who would enter illegally as a leader who will allow them to stay once here. In fact, groups of them have been seen marching towards the Mexico-California border wearing shirts that actually ask President Biden to let them in. 
This is shown by the difference in apprehended migrants between January 2020 and January 2021, which rose from last year's number of 36,679 to this year's number of nearly 78,000. Do not be fooled. This is a crisis, and it is a crisis that our government is currently set up to worsen rather than to correct. If the federal government has one primary duty to its citizens, it is to protect us from external threats. This is one threat the federal government has failed to protect us from time and time again, and it will not be corrected until those in charge stop letting emotion govern their policy decisions, and they realize that a single country, even the greatest country on earth, cannot welcome into its lands all who seek to enter. As always, thank you for listening. Immigration is a good thing, but illegal immigration sets up both the individual who crosses illegally and the country that has to deal with that individual for failure. With the growing concerns surrounding human trafficking and the infiltration of criminal enterprises at our borders, we can no longer continue to support policies that reward those who violate our laws. We never could, no matter how young or how vulnerable those individuals may be. They cannot be allowed to jump the line in front of those who follow the rules to immigrate or seek asylum here legally, and they cannot be allowed to cause harm to our security and our citizens. The United States cannot provide refuge to the world at the expense of its own citizens, for whom it must place its primary concern and responsibility. Next week, I will discuss United States voting laws, especially in the light of the House's passage of H.R. 1, a bill that would almost entirely dismantle the voting system the framers intended by stripping states of any real role in deciding how their own elections will be conducted. As always, I turn to Alexis de Tocqueville for perspective. Quote, Everybody feels the evil, but no one has the courage or energy enough to seek the cure. End quote. There is evil in the crossing of many into our country with the clear intent to violate our laws. But too many in power refuse to stand up to make the hard decisions to address this issue head on. It's time they did. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, stay safe, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace hyphen veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2021.